thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Cast your mind back all the way to March 2018, over 100 episodes ago, when former landing signal officer Jack Curtis joined us to explain daytime carrier landings on episodes 13 and 14. Farva explained the policies and procedures used on our current fleet of angled deck aircraft carriers, but how was it different when carriers were straight back in the beginning through the Korean War? Well, this is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 137, and thanks to our guest, former U.S. Navy Lieutenant J.G. Dale Bourbon, who flew F-9F Panther jets during the Korean War, you're about to find out. All of the aircraft were parked in front, right, on the straight deck carrier. We took cuts, and then we blessed ourselves, hoping that everything would be okay. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and yeah, we have a really interesting interview coming up with Dale Bourbon. It's adapted from a happy hour, so we're kind of all over the place. We could have just as easily titled this episode Aircraft Carriers Part 3 or Naval Aviation's Contribution to the Korean War, but we're going to stick with day carrier landings, and we're using this one because it's just a continuation of our recent discussions on aircraft carriers. But before we get to it, how's it going? Gosh, it's been a little while since we had a chance to chat. On the last episode, we got straight to it. And so, yeah, well, let's see what's new. We did make it, I did, to the Blue Angels season debut at the El Centro Air Show. Took my youngest son and a friend of his. We had a good time. It was a bit more crowded than I expected. But we finally got through the security line and got in there. I had a really great time watching the aerial display and seeing some of the stuff on the ground. And we even met several listeners. So to those of you who figured it out and tried to track me down, thanks for that. We had a great time meeting you. And I just want to say to Spine Ripper from VMFA 225 out at Yuma, if you're listening, it's great meeting you and your buddies there in front of the uh, Mighty F-35B on static display. But Come on, dude. That call sign is just way too cool. I'm sure there's a good backstory. We didn't get a chance to get to it, but great meeting you guys and seeing all the aircraft out there. All right, let's see what else. Uh, had a great episode on carrier air traffic control with Katsy Sue. She was a good sport. And at the end of that, I mentioned we were going to celebrate my mother's 80th birthday, and we did. We all gathered in Southern Oregon and had a really great time. I took the picture that I mentioned in the interview with Sue, where the two of them were hugging on Tiger Cruise, and I put it on Instagram. And immediately thought, uh-oh, I just opened the door for a bunch of mom jokes. But you all took it easy on me, so I appreciate that. And yeah, we had a good time up there. And then at the end of March, we had that great strategic discussion on the centennial of Navy carriers with Sarge and Mini-Me, who returned to help out as co-host. Although he ended up really adding a lot to the conversation as like a second guest in a way. 
we just kind of off the cuff said, oh yeah, the Marines are the only ones flying two types of the F-35. And, and as always happens, someone said, nope, you're wrong. And that's fine. I learned that the Italian Air Force has F-35A and B. So thanks for that. Later in the month of March, we did learn of the tragic passing of Mr. Jeffrey Brain. You might remember he originally appeared as a happy hour guest on Patreon, which we replayed as an intermission in the summer of 2020, and then repurposed that as a bonus during UK month in February. Well, we went back and added remarks to past episodes announcing his passing, which I'm told was peaceful, surrounded by family. But again, it's just sad to hear, and our condolences to the Brain family. But in happier news, Paramount released at the end of March another Top Gun Maverick trailer, and they committed to May 27th. So it's on. And we are going to, here on the show, dedicate the month of May to Top Gun. I don't know if we'll call it Top Gun Month with one word or two as far as Top Gun goes, because we'll be talking about both the school and the movie, but we've got some good stuff lined up and uh, we're really going to celebrate this movie because I think it'll be fun. And that last trailer really adds a lot more to what we can expect to see. So yeah, we'll talk about it more in May. All right. We have just one listener question for this week and it's a phone call. Here we go. Hey there, Jello. This is Lucas from Scandinavia, Denmark. Specifically, I'm a digital designer. I love the podcast. What I'm wondering as a designer is one of the things that, for me, most signifies each squadron's identity, visual identity. That's the badges or patches that they have on their shoulders or as big signs out of their meeting rooms or squadrons on a boat, so on and so forth. And I'm wondering about is who makes these? Who actually comes up with the designs and the ideas for these? Is it internally in the squadron? Are there external services that are used or something for making them? Are they ever changed or updated over time? Do new squadrons get inputs on what goes on their badge, or is that kind of predetermined in some way? And perhaps most interestingly, what is your favorite squadron badge? Thanks so much. All right, Lucas, uh, let's see if I can do this. Tusen tak for die sportsmål. If I pronounce that even close to correctly, my mother was a Danish immigrant, so I'm Spent a bit of time in Denmark as a kid and uh, learned a little bit of the language. Not very much. I know the important things like small kea and sugarlela, which for everyone else is cookies and chocolate. So, you know, standard stuff there when you're a kid learning the language. Anyway, I appreciate your question. And I had to ask a friend who Googled it for me. And of course, turns out there is an instruction for that. It's OpNav Instruction 5030.4 Golf. That's 5030.4G. And it's called Navy Aviation Squadron Lineage and Naval Aviation Command Insignia. I didn't read it, but you can take a look and you can maybe even get back to me and see if that answers your question. Hopefully it does because I didn't get a chance to review it, like I said. And it was rare during my almost 25 years. I don't recall really too many insignias or names or anything else changing. But yeah, it doesn't surprise me that when they change aircraft, they do. So appreciate the question. All right, let's get to the interview. Now, as stated earlier, this is adapted from a happy hour. So for those of you longtime listeners of the show, it's not going to have the same feel as a usual interview because I wasn't following a script or an outline. Happy hours, which are a bonus for our Patreon supporters, they're just a casual discussion. I turn on the microphone and start hitting record, and really, we just kind of talk about whatever comes up, and you'll see that, or hear that, I guess, in today's interview. And so, there's also video, and you could find that over on Patreon if you go to our happy hour selection there. You can go all the way back. I think it was like happy hour six or seven, but it was back in 2020, and at some point, 
You'll hear uh, Dale hold up something that he's showing me because we did record the video. I think one of his target books, something along those lines. And then right away, you might hear us talking about the USS Hornet Museum up in the Bay Area and some of the restrictions that were in place when we recorded that in the uh, first year in the height of COVID, if you will, in 2020. That might have changed by now. Don't let us deter you from going to visit. I would just jump online and find their website. A quick internet search, I'm sure, could reveal that and they can tell you uh, what it's doing. At any rate, with enough of that, let's get to the interview with Lieutenant JG, formerly of the U.S. Navy, Dale Bourbon, talking about day carrier landings and aircraft carriers and hydraulic catapults and naval aviation in the Korean War. We're going to cover it all. Here we go. I appreciate you taking the time to just chat a little bit with us here. And I guess the first thing is, is you and I have both landed high-performance aircraft on aircraft carriers. But when I land, I go to full power. And when you landed, you didn't, did you? No. <laughs> on the straight deck carrier, we took cuts and then we blessed ourselves, hoping that everything would be okay. <laughs> All right. So you landed on an aircraft carrier that was straight. You didn't have the angle. Yes. So when you landed, you cut the power, so you didn't want to keep going because what? All the other aircraft are already parked in front of you? All of the aircraft were parked in front, right? We had a barrier. There was two types of barriers, one for the uh, propeller-driven aircraft, and then you had the palisades or the nylon barrier hanging down, and in front would have been extra aircraft. So if the tail hook didn't catch. You would be into the barrier. If you came in too fast, there's been times when the pilot would touch down and he would bounce over the barrier. Well, now you're going to have a crash and people are going to get killed, not just the pilot, but plane captains and everybody else there. So anyhow, it was an experience, but I'm glad that I did it. I enjoyed it. In fact, carrier landings, believe it or not, was one of my uh, best attributes as far as being a pilot is concerned. Uh-huh. Well, I think there is some truth to that. Landing on a ship does make you hone your skills very quickly, or perhaps you get washed out. But let's go back a little way. So now straight deck carriers went away, I think, in the 50s. So you must have been flying in the late 40s, early 50s? I was flying during the Korean War. Our first mission was on the 1st of March of 1953, our last combat mission was the day the war ended, July 27th of 53. And then following that, we came back to Alameda. We transferred from the Panther jet into the F9F6 Cougar jet. And later on in 54, I made a cruise on the USS Hornet, which is now a museum in Alameda. After that, I was separated from the service, so I had two cruises, both on Essex-class carriers, straight-deck carriers. And so how many landings did you end up with? That's always a mark for naval aviators, is how many landings on carriers? I had 192 landings, 175 were in jets. Wow. And how many missions in Korea? Had 90 missions. <laughs> well... You don't look particularly old. You must be in your 80s. Ha, I'm 90. 
<laughs> well, I'd rather go the wrong way than the other way. But, <laughs> all right. And did I hear correctly that you have not flown an airplane since what, 1955? 55, yes. No kidding. Just after that, there was nothing else to compare or you lost interest or you went and I think did other academia, didn't you? I uh, went back to college. I still had a year to go and then was in education for 33 years. I've been retired for uh, 30 years. And out of those 30 years, 22 have been a docent on the aircraft carrier Hornet Mm -hmm. in Alameda. That's my home away from home. Oh, I bet. And you still go out there, do you? I think you said you're going out there this weekend. I go out there tomorrow, in fact. Well, good for you. Is there a good turnout out there right now with all this COVID stuff? Well, with the COVID, it's down because of some of the restrictions. The only uh, decks that are open would be the hangar deck and the flight deck. The roll-up curtains are open on the hangar deck. We cannot take people to any enclosed spaces. You know, we give great tours. We've had people say that the Hornet gives better tours than some of the others. Now, I know you're down in San Diego with the Midway and what have you, but they're probably having the same problems that we are with the lockdowns and restrictions. Mm -hmm. I presume so. I have not checked with them since we recorded an episode for my podcast. It's been a couple of years now, but Mm -hmm. I understand they're trying to claw their way back to life. And so Hopefully the whole world will at some point if they can figure out this COVID craziness. All right, let's go back, Dale, if we can, to landing on a straight deck carrier because this still boggles my mind. So let's start with if you're coming in at the end of a flight. Now, what we do is we have what's called a case one arrival, and you might have had different terminology, but the different flights would hold overhead the ship. And then when it was their turn, they would come down and come into the break. So you turn over the ship and do a descending, decelerating 360-degree turn. Is that something like what you did back then? That's exactly. We would pass by on the starboard side, Mm -hmm. and then we would individually break and come around when you're at the 180 position. You would call into the ship, and the Phil C that I was on had a strange name. Their call sign was Onion Skin. And so <laughs> you'd get to the 180 and you'd call in Onion Skin. This is June Grass. That was VF91's call sign. This is June Grass 13 at the 180, gear down, hook down, state. That's the fuel. Right. 800 pounds, which you wanted to have 800 pounds. Then you would start turning and coming into the groove. And you had the LSO, landing signal officer, back on the afterport side on a platform mm-hmm. with uh, two paddles. And you're looking at the deck and you're looking at the LSO. And at the right time, he gives you the cut signal, which is bringing the right arm across his chest and the lower one down. So you're cutting your power and then you start praying that <laughs> the tail hook is going to catch. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, Vincent, is that I made a trip on the um, USS Ronald Reagan. My grandson was there. This is called a Tiger Cruise. This oh, yes. 2011. I'm watching the F-18s come in aboard on your angle deck and what have you. Once their tail hook would catch, their rollout might be 280 feet because mm-hmm. they're coming in pretty fast and they're heavy. Our rollout might be less than 100 feet. 
Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and consequently, we could have closer intervals coming in. We set a record once, I forget if it was on the Filsey or the Hornet, where we were able to average a recovery less than 20 seconds between planes, which is fast. Yeah, 45 seconds is fast today, but not to debate with you per se, Dale, but of course in an F-18, two things. Number one, our approach speed is probably about 135, 40 knots. What was it in your F-9Fs? I would try to come in about 122. Okay, so not that different. But the other thing is when we land, as we stated before, we go to full power, but you're already cutting the power even before you land. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. No power. Yeah. So let me go back. Do you remember about how long you wanted to spend in the groove? And that's for those who maybe listen to this later who aren't familiar. That's as we turn, like you said, you're at the 180 which is a beam the ship to the port side facing the opposite direction. And now you are descending and turning until you are lined up behind the ship. And when you go wings level behind the ship, that's called the groove. Today, we shoot for about 17 seconds in the groove. Do you remember what it was for you? I don't recall. Okay. But you had a few seconds, right, in your mind to fly. And now we look at a lens, which is illuminated day and night, and you were looking at a landing signal officer, which is why we call them paddles today. So they had colorful paddles in their hands. What kind of signals could they give you? Could they give you left and right or too low, too high? Uh, What could they give you? All of those. (laughs) Too high, too low. They would stand on one foot and kick one foot out, showing you that you were in a skid. (laughs) Wow. All different kinds of Signals. Now, what is interesting, when you flew, it was basically jets and the cockpit is up forward. I flew jets in that way. But the poor guys who were flying the Corsair engines with that big engine out in front, uh-huh. especially in the F4U Corsair, they had to kick in right rudder and they were in a skid so that they could look out to see the LSO. I mean, it was sort of hairy. No kidding. So when you come down and you're watching him, my guess is if he needs to wave you off for whatever reason, he needs to do that sooner than later because you've got to get over that barrier. Or when you wave off, do you turn right away? When he gave the wave off, we would add power and we would start turning a little bit. The thing is, if you were settling, this happened to me once, and I got the wave off, I was afraid that they weren't going to lower the barrier down. See, we had a barrier up all the time. Right. You people only would put it up if there was an emergency. It's very rare. If we caught that top of the barrier, you're (laughs) in a bad way. So they could drop the barrier very suddenly? Oh, yeah. They would lower it and boom. And then it would pop up for the next guy. Okay. the barrier was always going down and up. So how many wires were there behind the barrier? Because on a normal carrier, there's four, and you want to land in the middle, and that'll take you forward to the third wire, so the OK3, we used to call it. Now, on the Reagan that you were on, I believe that one was the first with only three, and they would target right on top of the two. Wasn't there several cables or pennants on your ships? We had 12 cables. Okay. You didn't want to catch the number one. You were too close to the fantail there. Right. And you would try to catch before the sixth wire because 
you would be rolling and you might wind up in the barrier even though you have caught the tail hook. That would probably not be good. All right, so let's say you make a safe landing, you've come back to idle, you grab one of those 12 wires, you pull out 100 feet, you stop. Then, of course, you've got the, I assume they were even yellow shirts back then, but you've got someone directing you. And so what do they do? Do they put down the tennis net, you know, the barricade, and you taxi forward that and they put it up again behind you? That's correct. Wow. That thing was always going up or down. Okay. You had the people controlling you to where you went. So then you pulled forward of that. You were relatively safe, short of someone behind you catching the top of it and having a problem, as you said earlier. And then, of course, they chalked and changed you and you shut down and then you went below. Yes. Now, were these carriers, were they wooden decks? They were wooden decks. That's impressive. So I wonder, when you left, it was still straight decks. Is that correct? The angles deck were just coming in. The Antietam was the first one. I'm not sure. But I never did land on an angle deck carrier. What's interesting, on my second cruise in 54, right after the Korean War, we went down to San Diego for carrier calls. What they did, they even had us doing touch and goes on a straight deck carrier in anticipation that maybe sometime you might be going aboard an angle deck. And it was really weird, I'll tell you. Well, that was going to be my question, Dale, is for those of you who were so used to what we like to call muscle memory, and that's not my term, but you had muscle memory of cutting the power when you landed. That could be really disastrous on an angle carrier. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So your pilot friends had to relearn everything. Did you have any friends who had any harrowing stories that you recall? The only story I can remember on the carrier calls, we went down to San Diego. Mm -hmm. By the way, we were landing on the Phil C, which is the one I had sailed on previously in Korea. And in our squadron, we had an Air Force exchange pilot, a great pilot and a great man. He was an Air Force captain. He'd been flying Sabre jets. So when Captain Ken was going to come aboard, we were all up in Vulture's Row watching him. And you could almost see his eyes, just (laughs) huge things landing. Well, he did well. We came back to Alameda. Guess what? The first day he says, hey, guys, it's been nice knowing you, but this is not for me. He did not like carrier landings. The irony of the whole thing was he stayed in. He became a lieutenant general. I think he was the seventh superintendent of the U.S. Air Force Academy. (laughs) (laughs) But he knew his limitations, huh? Oh, he knew his limitations. All right. He wanted no part of that. Dale, these days we grade landings because the byproduct of the competition of grades is safety. Did they have grades back then? Or I mean, obviously, if you had an unsafe pass, I'm sure you got a speaking to. But did you guys have grades? As far as grading, after every mission, the LSO would come down and go through everybody, telling them what they did. We did not, on either one of those carriers, like, On the Hornet, Ready Room 4, which is the only Ready Room that's up, they have a board with all of the names, all those crazy names like your Jello and whatever. We didn't have that (laughs) much stuff. We did not have anything posted like that. But we knew whether you basically an up or a down. And if you had a couple of bad marks, you were grounded. 
and you had to requalify. Wow. So it was binary, right? Yeah. So today we have grades similar to academic grades like A's and B's and C's. You had yeses and no's effectively. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Dale, in the daytime, did it get to the point where you didn't mind them? Unlike the Air Force fella, was the daytime landings okay? Did you find that after a while you got used to them and they weren't so bad? Oh, yeah. And the thing is, back then, very few of the Navy pilots were designated as night carrier qual because we had a small composition squadron of night fighters. I did come aboard once when it was really dark out, but you couldn't see the LSO, even though he had some small lights onto his uniform. So we just were basically day pilots. <laughs> well, that was what I wanted to ask you is how on earth you did this at night. For us, modern day, the procedures are somewhat the same once you get into the groove as far as meatball lineup and angle of attack. Although your way to get there is different. We'd have the overhead pattern like you did, but at night we do straight-ins. And I was just going to ask you how those fellas did it at night. And so there was some sort of light system, but you can't take all those aircraft up on the bow and put them anywhere else, right? So you still have to have the big net and everything else? Oh, yeah. You had the same situation because we had close to 90 aircraft aboard. And the SA class carrier are definitely smaller than the ones that you flew off. Oh, gosh, yes. Well, and I'm surprised to hear the approach speeds were very similar 122 knots. The Super Hornet, I've seen. In the high 120s, when I was particularly light and not carrying very much fuel or ordnance, I should say. What about, let's start at the other end of this. How did you get airborne in the first place? We had hydraulic catapults, which uh, sometimes you might get a weak shot. I saw one person who had a cold shot. I never was launched off of a steam catapult. But people say it is so much better than the hydraulic catapults. You never know what's going to happen on those. I had an interesting experience, if you have time. Absolutely. I got catapulted off. In fact, I know the date. We we're going to go for a CAP, Combat Air Patrol, during Korea. And this happened on May 8th. I got catapulted off. And according to the plane captain, after I got back, he said the voltage regulator Something happened to it. I lost electrical power. Not completely. I could hear, but I couldn't transmit. But my instruments were all screwed up. So I caught up to the leader, and I gave him hand signals that this plane was down and what have you. And so they went ahead and said to dump my wingtip tanks, because the Panthers had tip tanks, 75 gallons, I think, on each wing. And so I hit the, uh, not to eject the tanks, but to get rid of the fuel. And all of a sudden, I realized, hey, no gas is coming out of the starboard tank, but everything's coming out of the left. So this meant my right wing was super heavy. I was starting to lose control below 140 knots. And so they told me they're going to make a straight in. So here I am away from the 360 coming from the 180. My flight leader, he was a great guy. 
he was one of the good pilots in our squadron. In fact, he was a Navy ace during World War II. He led me in, then he broke off at the end. And order when I'm in the groove, Vincent, I had to have the stick clear over to the left to lower that left thing. And I think my approach speed was 150 knots. I touched down. I caught a wire, thank God. When I got out, I almost kissed that deck. That was the hairiest landing I had. Wow. Well, it's a testament to the aircraft and the equipment that it could bring you aboard with all that weight at that high speed. Yeah. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. So hydraulic catapults, that sounds interesting. Of course, now they've gone to steam catapults and these days they're working on electromagnetic catapults so technology marches on as always did you launch with your canopy open just in the event that something went wrong the reason we did that is because the ejection seats in those days you had to be approximately 800 feet altitude or higher to eject now they eject right off the ground so we were catapulted with the canopy open and we came aboard with the canopy open (laughs) No kidding. All right. And so I'm assuming you had cyclic operations like we do today. So once the last aircraft lands, then they move all the aircraft from the bow, what, back to the stern? And then later when it's time, then they start shooting them off the bow. Yeah. So did you have the pull forward? Was that a terminology you used back then? If in the middle of a cycle, an aircraft had a problem, would they have to pull all those aircraft back up to the front to land that burdened aircraft? I really don't know. But you had to have that clear deck for anybody to come aboard. And as you had stated before, we had all of our extra planes. If they weren't on the hangar deck, they were up forward in front of that barrier. Mm -hmm. And were the hangar elevators, were they in the middle of the ship or on the edges like today? We had three elevators. The up forward and back aft were in the center of the uh, flight deck. And number two was out on the port side. Well, it's amazing how much is the same, yet how much is different. Dale, we haven't really even talked about your experiences in the conflict itself. Was there anything particularly harrowing or any engagements? Well, I'd like to say this so that people will understand. The Navy's role in Korea was to give the armed forces the support on the ground. The Air Force took care of the MiGs. Very few Navy pilots during 
the Korean conflict of 1950 to 53 ever saw enemy aircraft. And so we had about seven or eight different types of targets or missions, I should say, that supported the troops on the ground. You had the strikes in the Panther. We could carry six 250-pound bombs, three under each wing. If you didn't have the bombs, you had rockets. We had four 20-millimeter cannons, 800 rounds each. So you had the strikes where you had a specific target, and you also had an alternate in case the first one was clobbered in by clouds or what have you. You had armed reconnaissance. War is hell. That's not fun. But if you were to have fun, if you were on a reco, that was more fun because you were jinxing, moving altitude. And even though you might be a section leader, your wingman was out a little bit because he was jinxing too. He wasn't just flying on your wing the whole time. And you were looking for targets of opportunity. It could be tanks, it could be trains or what have you. So those are the two main things. But then you had the close air support. And then interesting to know, back in those days, one of the admirals was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian. (laughs) (laughs) And we had a form of close air support that was named for him, a Cherokee close air support. (laughs) The close air support You were picking out enemy troops just beyond your front lines. On the Cherokee close air support, you were picking out their supplies beyond the enemy troops. So you had those two things. Naturally, you had your cap combat air patrol, but you also had target caps. So if the propeller-driven aircraft were going in on a strike, you would be up high on a cap protecting them from anything else. And then you had photo escort, where the photo plane didn't have any guns, and so you would be his sole protector. And then here's something. I don't think you may have heard about it, if you have. We had a type of a mission called MPQ. What the letters stood for, I don't know. But I was on three of those MPQs near the end of the war. And what it was is you had a primary target. We were going to go in, but unfortunately, it was covered over with uh, clouds and what have you. We couldn't see the targets. The secondary, same thing. So we called in to either an Army or Air Force transmitting station and with their radar they guided us in so here we may be say at 12,000 feet flying straight and level like a bomber and they would tell us when to pickle to drop our things and we didn't know what we were going for but that was called an MPQ. I've asked people who uh, flew well after me and they never heard of that title before. (laughs) Well, I've heard of something similar in World War II. The B-17s would do something like that. But I can't imagine that was particularly accurate or maybe even effective. But perhaps it let the enemy know that they couldn't hide under the weather. Yeah, but it was sort of scary because you're flying straight and level and you're not jinxing. And so here you have anti-aircraft guns coming up. Yeah, well, that's not good. (laughs) So, Dale, one thing I wonder, because through my own limited experience in Iraq, 
there was always the question of making sure the target you might attack, let's say on one of your armed recce flights, was in fact enemy. And I'm just curious what you used back in those days. Was it, no kidding, visual recognition, or was it just awareness of the battlefield and where the friendly troops were? But if you saw a tank in your example, how did you know that it was an enemy tank versus a friendly tank? Because it was just visual. When we went on a mission, it was basically over North Korea, well beyond our front lines. Okay. And another thing people don't realize, back in the 50s, we had very limited radar. We didn't have radar on our planes. In order to know where we were going, I happen to have right here, this is a chart book, and it has all sorts of pages of areas in Korea itself, even South Korea. And so what we did in our particular squadron, the air intelligence officer got all of the pilots received this type of book, which is clumsy because they had 24 pages in. He would give you a picture of the, your primary target. So then in the ready room before you'd go out, you would go ahead and open up the page to where this target photo was located. Now, Korea is sort of like parts of Northern California with a lot of hills and what have you. But during the winter time, it snows and would be like up in Northern Colorado during the winter time. Everything is white. You try to pick out a target inland quite a ways. I'll be honest with you. We usually found our target. It was hard. But the type of ordnance that we had with the bombs or rockets, if we came within 50 yards of dropping a bomb and hitting that target area, we were really doing well. Whereas you people, you wanted to go in the front door or the back door. You know, I mean, um, we tried to do the best we could under the circumstances, but it was difficult. Well, Dale, and you were dropping, I presume, ballistically, correct? So you had a couple of uh, Z diagrams, we would call them. I don't know if that's the terminology you used. Like if I roll in at this visual point and I go to 45 degrees and I have this speed, then I should be able to drop at about this altitude. Is that how you did it? Or what did you use to prosecute your air-to-ground deliveries? Trial and error. <laughs> No, we had our gun sight. Okay. We would roll over and go into the dive. Sometimes in the briefing, they'd say, go ahead and let's release the ordinance at 5,000 feet or 8,000 feet. Depends upon the altitude of the uh, target if it's up in the hills. But the best that we could do is if we were attacking bridges because they were sorted down low and they were in a valley, but you had to watch out because. In a valley, the North Koreans had anti-aircraft guns up there, and they'd be firing at you as you came down. We did knock out a few bridges because um, it was just easier to see mm-hmm. than some of the uh, buildings and what have you on the ground. Have you been back to Korea since the war? No, sir. No desire or just no opportunity? or well, I would like to go back about five years ago on Veterans Day. The uh, VFW had a display 
honoring Korean War or what have you. And they asked me if I had a display. I had a chart book I showed you. I brought target photos. I brought all sorts of stuff. A woman came up. She was looking at the stuff. I said, you're interested in this? She says, I was from Korea. Oh, you were? Well, they'd given us a book about Korea now and then. I said, would you autograph this? She wrote an autograph saying how much she appreciated the American servicemen for going in there and saving her country. She's now a registered pharmacist. Her, her husband is a pharmacist here in the United States. She is was very appreciative. I'd like to go back there sometime, but at 90, I don't think I'll. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a long flight for anyone, Dale, let yeah. alone at 90. But yeah, I don't blame you. Well, along those lines, you said you've never flown since other than as a passenger, I presume. But after the war and after your service, just what? No interest in flying anymore? Oh, I had the interest. But my big thing was is that I wanted to uh, finish my college education, which would require me going to summer school. And if I joined the reserves, it would have been delaying me getting my BA degree and general secondary for teaching. And so I love flying. I've gone up several times with uh, one of my former pilots, a private pilot, but I had a set priorities. And my priority, number one, was getting my uh, teaching credential. And another thing, I felt I was a pretty good average pilot, nothing super, nothing really poor. When I went, got out, I went to the reserve squadron that I had been in as an enlisted man. And I said, do you have open belts? Oh, yeah. What are you flying? They said, F2H Banshee. Well, I started thinking I heard some bad rumors about flame outs and all that. And I started thinking, you know, I love flying. But I had 192 carrier landings and 90 missions in Korea where they're shooting at you. Do I want to go up and be a weekend warrior and crash? <laughs> and um, I missed it. All right. Well, that's good to know because I always feel like pilots are a unique breed of humans that are only on this earth because we have to be and given any chance they can, they'll go flying. And I don't know about you. I've been retired a few years from the military. I still crane my head to watch if I hear an airplane go over, especially a jet, but it's a unique calling. Let me ask you this, Dale, when you think back to your experiences that you shared today, and I do appreciate you sharing them, how do you think, if at all, those have shaped you as whether a man or a teacher or a coach? Is there anything from those experiences that have shaped you today? When I was in high school, I was an average student and an average athlete. I wasn't really a leader. When I went to flight training, was a NAVCAD, Naval Aviation Cadet. And when I finally got my wings pinned on, I felt like Something really has happened, and I started taking charge. I became a leader and not a, just a follower. Ever since, I think I've been one of the lead docents on the Hornet. My graduating class from high school was in January of 48. In those days, we had two graduations. I was the uh, person who did all of their class reunions for 
years and years. And when I quit, nobody else would do it. So I was taking charge of that. I just like to make suggestions to the Hornet now. And I attribute that to my becoming an officer and a pilot. And one thing about being a pilot, and I don't know if you ever had to do this before, but you know, the pilot is, in my day anyhow, was in charge of his aircraft. Somebody else may be telling you to do something, but if you felt it wasn't right, and you wanted to save that aircraft and you were to save yourself, you can almost tell them where to go. <laughs> in one instance, over Korea, I was a wingman of a, a lieutenant. He got shot up a little bit. Not bad. He started panicking. I was an ensign at the time. You know what I said? I got a, on the radio and I told him, hey, would you shut up and follow me? I'm going to lead you to King 18. And King 18 was the emergency landing area. And he got down there safely and all that. But it was just upsetting me because he was on the radio jabbering and really fouling things up. And I felt somebody had to take charge. And I did it as an answer. <laughs> So. Well, you did it because it needed to be done. So, yeah. you know, the Korean War, I would say, Dale, is maybe not quite as it's I think has a slightly better reputation, let's say, than the Vietnam War. As far as that goes, the uh, conflict of why we were there, why we fought it. What would you want people to know about either the Korean War or the naval aviation's role in the Korean War? Well, the Korean War, let's face it. It happened before the uh, free speech movement in the colleges in the late 50s and 60s, especially around UC Berkeley and what have you. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of this happened. We didn't have so many people during Korea that were protesting the draft, whereas the people during Vietnam the draft dodgers and what have you. Attitudes of the American public really changed. And here we were trying to help out a um, country that was going to be overthrown by the communists. Yeah, there was a lot of bad things about Vietnam, but I felt we did the right thing in Korea and we've helped them out. Unfortunately, it is not known as the Korean War, it's the Korean conflict, it's a police mm -hmm. action. But you know that number of Americans got killed in supporting Korea. You know, another thing, Dale, I want to ask you is the term hero gets thrown around a lot, gets abused, if you ask me. I wonder if anyone's ever tried to affix that term to you for your experiences and what your response is to that. No, because if they were to do it, I would simply come back, you know, that most naval aviators, at least in my day, the heroes were the enlisted person in the squadron. They're the ones 24-7 that kept the planes flying, and if they were ship's company, they kept the ship going. In my day, because we did not have in-flight refueling, over Korea, our flights were an hour, half hour, 45, we'd try to get back within two hours because of the limited amount of gas. But those poor enlisted guys out on that snowy, icy deck, 
They're working their tails off while we're in a warm situation, in a comfortable situation. So I always give credit to the enlisted people. If there's heroes, those are them. And then there's going to be a small, limited number of pilots who do the extreme. So let's not think of us as heroes. Think of us as doing a job. Amen to that. Well, Dale, this has been amazingly enlightening. I had no idea what it was like to take off or land on a straight deck, wooden deck carrier. And you have shed some light on that. And you're still sharing that with folks there on the USS Hornet in the Bay Area on tours. So thank you for everything you have done and for what you did today. Thank you for asking me to do it. Okay. Thanks again. Okay. You take care. All right. What a great conversation. Thank you again, Dale, for taking the time to join us and explain your service, which was relatively short. I mean, gosh, only a few years and then went on to serve students in the public education system for over 30 years. That's amazing. Man, what a great story. And uh, I did reach out to Dale recently to let him know I'd be using this interview for an episode. And he's now 92, still doing great. He and his wife just returned from a Danube River cruise and a tour of Europe. So he's still getting around and who knows, maybe he'll still make it out to Korea. I don't know about you, just really appreciated everything he had to say and how down to earth he was. And I just really loved at the end the little bit he gave about how naval aviation taught him to be more of a man and a leader and the confidence that he had just to take charge when charge needed to be taken. And that took, obviously, effect in the military, as he said with his story, but also, I'm sure, through his coaching and his teaching all through the years. And even, like he said, with the reunions and everything he's done. So, very cool. And I just enjoyed that. Now, again, for you longtime listeners, hey, you didn't end with the call sign. Yeah, that's true. I asked him later and he said he went by Burv, which I'm sure was just short for Bourbon. So, uh, yeah, a lot of those uh, earlier generation fighter pilots didn't have the Spine Ripper and Jello and all these other cool call signs that we come up with today. Although I'm not so sure that Jello is quote unquote cool. Anyway. All right. Thanks again, Dale. Great conversation. On a quick side note, you know I enjoy reading, so I want to take a moment to discuss a book I recently finished titled Flying Camelot, written by Michael W. Hankins, who joins us today. Hello, Mike. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks. All right, so the subtitle of this book is The F-15, The F-16, and the Weaponization of Fighter Pilot Nostalgia. What was the inspiration for this book? I knew I wanted to write about this generation of aircraft, right? The F-15 and F-16. And as I started researching it and looking into some of the people that were influential in the design process, it just kept popping up all these references to World War I or maybe World War II kind of dogfighting and these kind of concepts of air-to-air combat and these kind of nostalgic longings for that style of warfare. And it just kept happening so frequently that the more I read, that's kind of the track I ended up going down, which is kind of what the book is about, is how this kind of fighter pilot culture and mentality influence the design process of those aircraft. Now, you are the curator, as I understand, of the U.S. Air Force history at Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Was there a time you thought about being a military aviator? Just curious. I don't think I ever seriously considered joining the military because I don't think I would thrive well in that type of environment. (laughs) You know, my dad was an engineer on some defense projects related to laser-guided munitions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he used to bring home all this test footage of F-4s dropping paveways and 
I was just so interested in fighter planes as a technology. I decided to go more towards that track rather than try to fly them myself. Well, and you already alluded to it, but I had a section here right in the very beginning in the introduction where you said, during World War I, a collection of ideas, beliefs, and behaviors formed constituting fighter pilot culture and establishing what can be called the, quote, fighter pilot myth or knights of the air. Historians have defined this culture as an informal one marked by confidence and pride, even arrogance, that stings a little, (laughs) in which pilot skill and air-to-air kills were the currency of status and women were objectified if they were regarded at all. And then you wrap up, their definitions are useful and accurate. So I have to tell you, Mike, I want to be polite about it, but I found the overall tone of the book to be somewhat belittling or derogatory to fighter pilots. And of course, being one, I bristled a little here and there. Well, I certainly don't mean to offend anyone. And I think one thing I do point out a lot in the book is that this kind of culture that you just described with that quote is a spectrum. You know, not all fighter pilots are like this, and I'm not trying to say that they are. Right. I think to your point, in recent decades, that culture has diminished quite a bit, really since the end of the Vietnam era, especially since the end of the Gulf War. You see that kind of thing less and less, right. which I think is probably for the best. But yeah, I think the earlier you back you go, like in that World War One and Two, that those things can be a little more common. But you know, some pilots are very much about that, and some pilots reject that completely. Right. And acknowledging that spectrum is important. And it certainly has changed more and more in recent years. I have made that case myself here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. But I really enjoyed the alternate perspective, if you will, that you provided in this book from the John Boyd biography by um, Mr. Corum, because I really enjoyed that book. And so I think you offered a very nuanced approach to some of the braggadocio or however it's pronounced right, and some of the bravado of all those acolytes and uh, that whole crowd. Well, thanks. You know, I think the discussion around Boyd, it's a tough one because so many people really, really love him, understandably. Mm -hmm. So many people also understandably dislike him. So I think going too far in either extreme is probably doing him a disservice. So I think, you know, looking at him as a person, a very complicated person, I think is what I'm trying to do there. How has the book been received so far? For the most part, it's been great. A few reviews have come out and they've been pretty positive. And there's a few more that I know are in the pipeline. So I've heard mostly good things. You know, it's not the perfect book. There's a few flaws here and there. And you know, like any new author, you know, when you get your book back and open it, you kind of notice things immediately like, oh man, I wish I had changed this or that. So that is the case. But mostly I've been really encouraged by some good Great. feedback. And I assume Flying Camelot can be found wherever books are sold? Can. It's got on Amazon. You can buy it direct from the publisher at Cornell University Press or anywhere books are sold, I think. And where can people follow you? I found you on Twitter. Yeah, I'm sort of active on Twitter uh, occasionally. My handle is Hankenstein, but it's spelled with a T-I-E-N. Well, once again, the book is Flying Camelot, the F-15, the F-16, and the Weaponization of Fighter Pilot Nostalgia by Michael W. Hankins, who joined us today. Thanks very much, Mike. Thank you so much. All right, we can start to wrap up then for this week. I want to thank our new strike lead on Patreon, Nathan McCraw. And I want to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So that will do it for this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you in about 10 days time for a discussion on a twin turboprop aircraft that saw heavy action during the Vietnam conflict and is still being used by special forces today. Think you know what it is? You'll find out then. Until then, take care, be well, and we'll see you back here next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. 
So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.